for your ears only. This is For Your Ears Only, the audio series that takes some deep dives into the world of podcasting. I'm Martin Spinelli. And I'm Lance Dan. I'm not Lance Dan. No. Uh, no, I'm Ella Gray Thomas. I'm one of the producers of this show. Lance Dan is ill. So you've got me instead. Bet you won't tell the difference. I'm another sarcastic British person, so it's fine. Hey, Ella, do you remember why I was so distracted and distressed at our last production meeting? Yes, you were tearing your hair out about some new ethical review process that everyone has to do at Sussex for all of their creative projects. Yeah, that's right. This is for staff and for grad students as well. And it's also oddly appropriate because today... And for your ears only, we're going to be talking about what the growth of podcasting might be doing for the way we think about media ethics. Okay, then. So what did we used to talk about when we talked about media ethics? We often had conversations about conflicts of interest, people taking money to spin stories in particular ways, accuracy of representation, uh, and a public's right to know. So not much then? Not much then. Not much. Well, all of those ethical processes, they were all based from places like the BBC, from broadcasters that do have those rules. But, of course, podcasters, they get to do whatever they want. So surely that must have some kind of impact on how podcasters and makers approach ethics in their creativity. And so that is what we will be discussing today. And if we're very, very lucky, we might actually get to the bottom of it. Okay, so going back to the subject of people who aren't allowed to do whatever they want, let's have a look at this ethical review system that Martin finds quite stressful and upsetting. Some of the things that they read flag as being dangerous for a project include, uh, will your study involve participants who are particularly vulnerable? Will participants be required to take part in the study without their consent? Will the study involve discussion of sensitive topics? Oh, hang on, this is a good one. Will your study involve the taking and or storage of human tissue that falls under the Human Tissue Act? What podcast doesn't? Okay, so yeah, I get that these rules are annoying, but aren't ethics important? Don't we, don't we need this sort of process? Well, I think it depends on what you mean by ethics. Okay, well, well what do you mean by ethics? <laughs> okay. Well, like, there's, you know, there are two ways of thinking about it. You can think about ethics as a kind of set of rules that you have to follow, or you can think about them you know, a little bit more abstractly as a set of guiding principles that kind of direct you in more interesting, positive, thoughtful ways. And my problem with the new process here at the University of Sussex is that I don't feel like it's opening up a conversation about what ethics is and should be. It just kind of it doesn't feel like any of that's going to happen as a result of this. No, it seems more like a, a long checklist of things which identify a project as, and I quote, high risk. High risk. Isn't that a great phrase? It's a fantastic phrase. Are we making a high risk podcast? Definitely. Okay, great. I'm happy now. So it lists all of these discussion topics that apparently make a project high risk, which include politics, sexuality, drug use, ethnicity, basically anything interesting (laughs) or worthy of discussion is making you jump through a lot of hoops in order to do it. And and to be fair, it's not just Sussex that does this. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, all media institutions have some set of guidelines. I think the BBC editorial guidelines are 228 pages long. Off the top of your head, you're right. (laughs) But yeah, that does sound like a faff. Do we need all of them? Maybe one of the bad things about making anything in an institution 
are the rules, the oversight, the auditing, all of this can can just kind of get in the way of creativity or just kind of curb it in ways. You know, we shouldn't kick institutions too much because, you know, the University of Sussex have provided us with this beautiful studio with lovely mics. And if me or Jack were to knock something on the desk and lose control of it, then a nice technician would come and help us. Like these, none of these are resources which the majority of podcasts have, or at least not, you know, the majority of podcasts that I have listened to. Yeah, you're right. They're produced outside of institutions. And thankfully, this kind of gives the whole podcasting scene a kind of bit of the Wild West still. There's a kind of freedom that's really appealing to the makers. Most people People are just making stuff. Yeah, and it's that freedom and that creativity that comes with that freedom is what draws a lot of listeners to podcasts. Like when we spoke to the audio critic Miranda Sawyer, it was certainly what she thought. So I'm very positive about podcasting, actually. I think it's given a lot of freedom and interest to people. And I'm constantly grateful for podcasts, you know. If you have small children, my children are quite young, they're 10 and 5, your life is really regulated. I am not a person that likes a regulated life, you know. I was freelance for years and the fact that I have to get up at the same day and get them out at the same day every day, I really resent it. And it's nice to have something to listen to that changes you, you know, that changes your life. And I think that podcasting really does that because it's free in all senses. There is a freedom about it. And I think that those things are the ones that last. I don't think that, you know, the podcasts coming from Kellogg's will last. Because it's like, who cares? I don't, I couldn't give two shits about it. Like, the ones where it's people expressing themselves or interviewing people or telling you something you don't know, those will last. Of course they'll last. Because it's a very intimate and easy way to learn about things. And people like doing that, you know. And I'm really happy. Honestly, I started reviewing radio when my son was born, so 10 years ago. But I think as you get older and you've been working in a medium for years, you get a bit bored. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you want to do something different. You know, there's a way of making a BBC documentary that drives me mad. And what they do is they open up with three cuts of clips of people. And then as a presenter, you kind of say a question. And then you go, I'm Miranda Sawyer. In this programme, I'm going to be taking a journey through such and such. And you just say, oh, my God, shoot me now. It's just... <laughs> And every bloody documentary starts like that. That's me laughing over Miranda Sawyer badly. I don't know what she's talking about. I love the Kellogg's podcast. <laughs> I'll bet. So what do they talk about on the Kellogg's podcast? Ethnicity and politics. <laughs> over cornflakes. Exactly. I mean, a couple of years ago, we were sort of going through a transitional moment in podcasting where sort of everything changed and got more mainstream. Before that, the majority of people doing podcasts were working in podcasts. They didn't necessarily have a background in radio or in media production. Since then, people with a background in those kind of institutions have sort of grasped the opportunity to do whatever they want in the podcast sphere. Yeah, and we're going to be looking at this very opportunity that podcasting has provided to rethink um, principles like object activity and detachment. And we're going to investigate how some alternatives might be evolving to fill that space. Okay, and to explore these ideas of ethical rules and following the guidelines, we've put together a little cautionary tale about what could possibly happen in a alternate universe where these rules have devastating consequences. Podcast Peter one day said the words his producer had come to dread. An idea I've had 
It's so immense. You'll scream, you'll cry. There's no pretense. Oh no. Oh dear. His producer sighed at the creative horror his words implied. A new podcast, said Peter. That will unfurl the organ trafficking underworld. I'll record the victims as they go. It's art, I say, they need not know. And the crooks, the cons, the blood, the gore, the leaf commuters wanting more. But podcast Peter, you haven't thought of the podcast rules we've all been taught. We cannot swear, we cannot shock. This is a boat you must not rock. If to the rules you don't obey, then the content cops will make you pay. So forget your tales of gruesome crime and instead record the book at bedtime. With that, his producer just left him there. But he was young and bored and laissez-faire. The rules? (laughs) Peter stopped to say. I'll make this podcast anyway. He took his car, he took his mic. I'm Podcast Peter, I'll do as I like. He tracked down where the traffickers lay and podcasted as the innocent were slain. At home, Peter played back his tape and thought, Hey, this podcast's taking shape. But little did Podcast Peter know, the content cops were on his toes. They tracked him down by day, by night, until they had him in their sight. And podcast Peter got quite the scare when he looked toward the window and saw them there. He did not scream. It was too late. He broke the rules he'd sealed his fate. The content cops, before he knew, from neath their robes took a rusty screw. Into his flesh, the screws they drive and begin to extract his organs alive. Oh, podcast Peter, you should have behaved. Had you listened, you could have been saved. If only you could take it back. But the world began to fade to black. Back home, his producer, out of the blue, a package received, no clue from who. Unwrapped it, she did, and at the bottom found Peter's ear in brown paper bound. Oh, podcast Peter, a tear she drops. You didn't fear the content cops. when podcasting became a thing, when people like my dad knew what it was, it was largely viewed as a unofficial form of radio where producers could just do whatever they want. Yeah, and a really great example of this is Alan Hall. He's one of the one of the world's leading audio producers. Um, and we've got a little clip of him talking about the freedom that he felt in producing a podcast uh, a few years ago. The moment that he's setting up in this little clip is when an elderly woman is about to have some erotic lit read to her. Is it Belinda Blinks? You don't know what that is, do you? No. Oh, Martin. <laughs> so for the broadcast, we weren't allowed to say, uh, report her saying, um, can, do you mind if I just go to the, to the loo? I want to jizz myself up. We couldn't say that in the broadcast, but we could put it in the podcast. 
Yeah, I can see why they wouldn't be able to put that <laughs> on daytime BBC radio. Not not even on Woman's Hour. They wouldn't not be able even to, on Woman's not Hour. Not even Woman's Hour. They would get far too many letters to justify that. But it does make it a lot more interesting to have those sorts of personal moments included in a podcast. Yeah, it's real. It's totally real. It's really clear that one of the main huge differences is content, right? There's no watershed. He doesn't have... 228 pages of stuff that he can't do. But Martin, the thing is that Alan Hall might not be actually the best example of this because he's an experienced radio guy. He has this background in the institutions of the BBC and podcasters come at it with a different angle, like Caitlin Prest. Very good example. Yeah, of the heart. Yeah, obviously the heart. I mean, for those who've heard the heart... Like, you couldn't really get that on the radio, and it's... No. No. She seems to have built her own ethical framework as she's gone along. But isn't that what she said to you when you interviewed her? Like, there are stories that we would have done for Audio Smut that we wouldn't do for The Heart. You know, it was sort of like radical sex education. Like, it was sort of... And the idea being that, like, telling true stories about the way that people fuck is the best way to educate the world about sex. Like, the, the mission sort of transformed into like authentically representing the private sphere trying to do you know documentary work in an area where no one does documentary work but even then like we're sort of stepping away from the political issue sort of driven thing and like are starting to now just try to tell stories that challenge what we know or what we think we know about love and gender. I do kind of want to keep going back there to making stuff that is explicit, but like even just yesterday, Mitra was talking about, (laughs) I shouldn't say, see, you know, like I'm already censoring, (laughs) but she was talking about like a sex issue that she was having. See, that's the thing is like, I guess like as I get older and more mature, I'm like more sensitive about what other people are comfortable with. And I know that the convention in our society is to be sensitive about people's privacy. And that's just something that I never gave a fuck about. But now I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want to like, you know, out anybody without their permission. And so whatever, Mitra had this thing and I was like, yo, you should totally make a radio piece about that. And she was like, I can't, like my mom listens to the show now. I can't like it's like it's a changing moment because the show is getting popular enough that like you know it's not just some dumb little art project anymore it's a real show yeah so that issue of privacy that's a big one in the heart and it's something that's very much in flux with her yeah that's right just after in that interview we talked about some other ethical conventions for documentary that she seemed to be outgrowing I asked her about a particular moment in the hearts hurricane episode when they took interviewees and had them reenact a scene from their past I I wanted to know if she felt that that crossed any ethical lines for her in delivering a reality or a truth to her audience I guess Mitra is the one who like really made that piece but that it's not it's not isolated to that I mean there was a piece that we did earlier that employed the same technique it 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 begins with an approach that we take to storytelling to truth telling which is that the emotional truth of the moment is more important than what really happened you know like a collection of facts is not necessarily going to recreate the feeling um, the feeling of the moment And that, like, we'll use whatever we want to use to sort of paint a picture of that emotional truth. And that emotional truth is something that's subjective to us. But we feel like it's okay to do that because we're telling our own stories. I mean, I guess that's the whole point of fact-checking is, like, you hear one person's account and then you find out how many other people can agree 
that that's what happened. But go to divorce court and you'll see, you know, like how how hard it is to actually fact check um, an emotional truth. <laughs> Even in couples where they love each other still, they will disagree about the moment that they met. The whole point of the storytelling isn't really to like, you know, investigate, but it's to sort of like shine light on an area of life that we don't ever get documentary material about. We only get to live it. Um, but going back to the, the reenactment thing, I mean, I th- that's I, I'm, I'm, I am kind of sad that the, that the interview felt less true to you. I think that probably what happened was she reached out to hurricane boyfriend, as we call him, to do these reenactments. You know, if we want to hear a man's voice, what better to have the actual man that from the time? And then as part of that recording session, inevitably, they ended up talking about what happened. You know, I don't think like it wasn't part of it was it was never part of the plan to interview hurricane boyfriend. And I think that like Going back to the bigger questions, I think that like one of the really cool things about um, podcasting and the, thing, the way things are changing is that, you know, we expect more of our listeners. So in the heart, some different ethical principles are coming to the fore. And in a bunch of other podcasts, there are a bunch of different ethical ideas that are beginning to take center stage. Things like diversity and participation, for example, are becoming much more important across lots of podcasts. That's particularly the case of a podcast like Podium.me, which is a youth podcast for people who haven't heard it yet. It was started after the London riots in 2011 to counter negative representations of young people, really, and to empower young people to tell their own stories. Yeah, Podium.me, particularly with its founder, Camilla Bike, is working really, really hard to rewrite, rediscover ethics for a new generation of journalists through podcasting. It's using the kind of unregulated, uncontrolled space of podcasting to kind of find a new way to contribute to the public discourse. Yeah, but um, Camilla Bike herself, she's not unfamiliar with the ethical rules of being a broadcast journalist. She was a TV and radio producer for big media institutions, but she's taken the opportunity that podcasting gives to basically tear up those rule books and find a new way of doing things. Yeah. She recognized in podcasting an opportunity to do something different. So here's Camilla Bike talking about what the podcasting space kind of offers to young journalists. I felt that uh, there was a gap in provision for young people to tell stories from their own perspective. There was no independent platform for essentially young people to talk about things that were important to them. I'm really proud that we rarely say no to a pitch from a young person. So the topics we cover are incredibly varied. But the podcasts that I'm most proud of, I suppose, are the ones that really come from the heart. We had a young person who was about to undergo um, breast reduction surgery, and she said, can I do an audio diary about this. What a brave thing to do. And I just thought it was such a powerful podcast that really allowed young women to express something that isn't talked about in polite company, but essentially is a very important part of growing up. There's really no kind of authority level at all. Um, The final sign off happens um, to be myself because somebody's got to take responsibility for what's going out. And we tend to err on the side of caution for all of those. And there are some things that we've pulled because we thought actually we're not sure whether it's okay to broadcast that or not. There was one podcast that nearly got made. It was to do with suicide and to enter a ward of young people who were on the suicide risk list. And I felt there was a line that I didn't want to cross that was too close to somebody's personal tragedy. So I'm really glad that we said no to that. 
I think when someone's at the depths of a situation, I don't want Podium to be there. How is podcast journalism different from conventional radio journalism? Well, for a start, podcast journalism isn't regulated. So we've got this free-for-all where you've got to listen to whatever you're listening to with a pinch of salt. Um, You need to weigh up whether you can trust the presenter and the facts because it's not going through a machine like the BBC, which will be checking and double-checking sources. We've gone beyond the point of worrying about this because it's out there anyway. And this doesn't just apply to podcasting, it applies to YouTube or any of these channels. And who's to know whether it's true or not? I heard in what she was saying in this part of her interview what I thought was her siding with what I might call some old-fashioned journalistic rules and principles, like speaking facts with authority. But when I pressed her on that point, here's what she said. Who invented the rules of journalism? They're based on a, on a premise that we trust the person who's speaking because they work for a particular organization that has certain guidelines and structures in place. That at some point was invented by somebody. Um, There will be new rules. Society will impose new rules. Um, Young people will have a different way of using social media from the way that we rather ineptly use it. It will evolve. Inevitably, it will. I am a fan of old-fashioned journalism. It's what I grew up with. It's, It's where I feel comfortable. But because I run Podium, I'm also very excited about all the new possibilities and different ways of telling stories. So I think I'm fortunate to be sort of between two worlds, if you like. Um, I sincerely hope that the BBC will continue to, you know, expand the World Service and other outlets that are carefully regulated because we need to have unbiased journalism. But certainly that's not going to be possible in the general kind of playground of the internet where kind of anything goes. So here you have Bike kind of attached to the value of those old school principles that the BBC World Service embodies. But she's also participating in this kind of drift away from those very rules. So she's still clearly in the process of figuring out what the new ethical rules are and if there will be rules at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's independent. It's free. But it's also a work in progress. She's really clear that new things, new ethics are going to fill that space. But listening to Camilla and what she said, in many ways, sort of, she's the regulator. There's no official guidebook, but she's saying what goes. Could be. And she does kill things. She does kill things. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're, you're right. She has the power to do that because she has the ability to listen to everything and to take personal responsibility for what goes out and have that nuanced way of looking at the content, like the head of the BBC or whoever's vice chancellor at Sussex at the moment for you know the next five minutes. Maybe that's their way of taking responsibility instead of doing it personally. Yeah, yeah, because they don't trust our humanity. They don't trust our humanity, and they shouldn't. (laughs) With good reason. With good reason. So, Ella, we simply cannot talk about podcasting, journalism, and ethics without talking about the breakout podcast in 2014 called Serial. Huh? I know you've heard of Serial. What do you remember about Serial? Okay, yeah, I have. What's it about? Well, it's an investigation, really, into a merger that took place in America in 1999. And it is famously a very story-driven, very compelling series that captured a lot of people's imagination. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also about more than just a murder and a good murder story. It's about rethinking and remodeling what journalism might be for podcasting. 
the producers on Serial almost always describe themselves as journalists. They're not storytellers or producers. They're journalists first. And this kind of indicates to me a, an attachment to some of those old established rules of journalism that we've been talking about. Things like objectivity and impartiality and detachment and honesty. But when you probe around, that kind of attachment to those ideas begins to kind of loosen a little bit. So here's Dana Chivas, the producer on Serial, talking about how she positions herself as a journalist. I personally think of myself as a, as a journalist. Um, that's my background. I, uh, I went to journalism school before I did the This American Life Fellowship. So my background is very much as a journalist. But, you know, the two go hand in hand. Was Serial conceived as a podcast or as a radio program? Serial was conceived as a podcast, yeah, from the get-go. It was always going to be a podcast. The first thing is Julie and, and Sarah. Uh, Sarah Koenig's our host. Julie Snyder's our executive producer. And they and they kind of said, like, let's do a little side project. We'll just do a little podcast. It'll just be like a fun thing that we do. With it not being a radio show, you also sort of had that that freedom that I talked about. And they they sort of wanted to keep it a little bit looser. And so that's why I think they conceived of the, the whole thing as a podcast when they did. Do you think there are any kind of ethical differences between online journalism and kind of old-fashioned journalism? Uh, I can't think of any differences just because of the format itself. There's sort of like a set of journalistic ethical standards, and it doesn't matter what format you're working in. Those are the ones you, you should stick to. Then we asked Dana Chivis about balancing a journalist's ethical principles with a producer's drive for a compelling story. I, yeah, I mean, it's hard for anybody because we're human, so we all come with bias no matter what. Um, I mean, we're not robots. But I think, you know, we all are journalists, so we're all used to doing that. We're very conscientious of it, and we're constantly questioning ourselves on it. Did that sentence sound like I feel this way or that way about whomever. And then, you know, for us with Serial, we have each other as sort of a check. If Sarah writes something and it makes one of us feel like, I don't know, it seems like you're being a little bit hard on whoever, we'll say that and we'll talk about it. We are very aware of, you know, part of your job is to, you know, is to not take a side as a journalist. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's hard for anybody. Yeah. If you're human, it's hard. So, in a way, even though she is a podcaster and is independent and is taking advantage of all those freedoms, she does still seem in many ways attached to those traditional ethical rules. But at the same time, she's also transgressing them. It's quite an interesting and mind-altering <laughs> way of, of, of looking, at the, looking at the series because, you know, they want those old-school journalistic rules of impartiality, but they also want that, you know, emotional connection, that story, that narrative drive. And, I mean, anyone who has listened to Serial will know that they claim to be independent and they're just looking at the facts and they just want to know what happened. But it's so clearly not impartial and yeah, yeah, not absolutely. impartial. That's, that's, that's a good, yeah, you can't escape that. You're you absolutely right. That. Like Sarah is clearly becoming attached to Adnan as a character and is not just looking at the facts. And part of the reason why that's possible is because at that particular moment in 2014, this is a kind of relatively new form still. And Sarah often refers to that, that particular moment. And she says stuff like, it's a podcast. No one cares. No one listens. You could do whatever you want. And one of those ways that they're able to tell the story is by 
making it up as the story is unfolding by discovering things through their research that means that they can kind of take a different tact that means the rules are going to be different. Yeah, and this is one of the big ethical questions about Serial because in its format, where they're investigating as each episode is going out, they source material from their audience. Of course, the question is, to what extent are those contributions affected by what they've heard in the podcast as it's going out? If you listen to a podcast that says there was a phone box in the lobby of the Best Buy, um, then you're kind of predisposed to think about the yeah, phone box in the exactly. lobby of Best Buy and kind of to confirm that. So, yeah, it's obviously a kind of a bit of a potential problem. I, I'm doubtful about how much they can be trusted because mm. people could be ringing in for any old reason. So, I don't know, like, sh- sh- should they really put them on the podcast if, if, we, if we don't know where they've come from? I think conventional journalistic rules would say no. Does this mean I'm a conventional journalist? <laughs> <laughs> no, it means you're a responsible adult. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, Which oh. is even worse. <laughs> oh, God, no! <laughs> So there are loads of moments in series one of Serial, like too many to count in many ways, where Sarah really can't bring herself to follow the rules, even though she seems to want to. Yeah, she's she's aware that she's drifting from that traditional journalist's path, and she's letting the listeners in on this. She'll often tell us that she knows she's becoming attached or developing opinions. Um, so listen to this example from Serial Season 1, Episode 2. At this point, I'm going to say flat out that I don't buy the motive for this murder, at least not how the state explained it. I just don't see it. Not one person says he was acting strangely after they broke up. He and Hay, again, by all accounts, were still friends. He was interested in other girls. He was working at his job. He was headed to college. About two weeks after his arrest, he gets an orientation packet from the University of Maryland. I don't think he was some empty shell of a kid who'd betrayed his family and his religion and was now left with nothing and conjured up a murderous rage for a girl who broke his heart. I simply don't buy it. And the reason I don't buy it is because no one who knew him, then or now, says that's how it was. But when these moments of opinion and hunches and attachment crop up in the podcast, she balances them almost immediately with comments that sort of pull her back onto that safer, familiar ground of journalistic rules. And yeah, she does seem to be walking a a tightrope in those clips. Yeah, and we feel for her. We kind of like identify with her and we're kind of in her head. We do, we do. If those clips weren't in the episode, you know, it might on paper be more ethical, but it wouldn't be as interesting. And that's partly because we are invested in her as a character in the podcast. She's more of a main character than Adnan is, really. It's very interesting how attached she is to those rules, even though in many ways she's not actually putting them into practice. Um, And again, that's one of the things that is so compelling about the series. If it was, you know, one way or the other, then it wouldn't be so interesting for anybody to listen to. Yeah. Fetishistic disavowal. Sorry, <laughs> is that some kind of episode of the heart? No, no, fetishistic disavowal. That's this uh, exactly what you've pointed to and what Sarah Koenig is doing. Um, it's this idea, an idea from a provocative writer named Zizek, um, where someone admits to the limitations of their own ideology privately, but continues to conform to that ideology publicly, continues ah. to kind of follow it. And that seems to be going on in serial all the time. Uh, We need to have a public face that follows the rules, but at the same time, we're also clued into the fact that these rules have problems 
and they're untenable. We can't follow them. It's impossible in some ways. Mm-hmm. The trying to balance it the way Sarah does mean that you know it means that she is in many ways sort of trying to have it both ways. She gets to have the strong narrative structure that comes with withholding information and being emotionally invested in the podcast, but also claiming to be impartial. Yeah, and maybe like a more charitable reading of that is, again, she's trying to work it out. She's trying to figure it out. That um, she's really working as hard as she can to be as honest as she can with them. A lot of critics have responded very, very badly to Serial, most notably critics who are deans at prestigious journalism schools. And one of the things they point to is the risk of defamation. So Mm. there's a kind of risk that you're going to, as you're uncovering stuff and reporting on it, and you haven't fully fact-checked it or information changes, that you're going to defame someone. Especially... With how Serial was released week by week as they were still investigating, withholding certain aspects of information to make the story more interesting. Like it's episode six before they tell you all the things that make Adnan look guilty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it's a good cliffhanger. Because it's a good cliffhanger. Like if I was writing a fiction story, that's absolutely what I would do. But when it's real people, real crimes, real teenage girl who's dead, it is a lot more ethically questionable to withhold vital information from your audience for just the sake of having a good podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And other mistakes were made too, if we can call them that. You're talking about the courtroom clips, aren't you? Yes, exactly. Um, Uh Some of those lawyers, for example, um, said that the courtroom audio probably shouldn't have been played in the series. Yeah, I remember thinking that when I was listening to it and going, ooh, maybe the rules are different in America, but it turns out possibly maybe not. Possibly not. But all these criticisms, they seem really attached to me to this old set of journalistic principles that are really organized to protect and defend and support a faith in media institutions rather than exploring and trying to figure out a new set of principles that might ethically guide podcasting. Serial isn't the only podcast that has publicly explored issues surrounding media ethics. Other podcasts have done it too, like Radiolab would be a good example of that and example of where it's gone wrong as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking in particular of the 2012 episode Fact of the Matter and the segment in it called Yellow Rain, which drew a lot of fire. This was a story about the Hmong people of Laos who were allies of the U.S. in the Vietnam War and the Viet Cong subjected them to these horrendous chemical weapons attacks. There's a moment in this when the presenter suggests that there might have actually not been any chemical weapons attacks yeah, at all. Krulwich. And that leads to quite an emotional moment with the translator. And that Yellow Rain segment was, a lot of people would say, not the finest moment of Radiolab. You know, having upset someone like that, the ethical question is why then include that in your podcast? Yeah, and that's a really important question. Why, why do it? Here's how Jad Abumrad answers that question. I reevaluated again. It's like um, in some way that that repre- that story is called Yellow Rain. It represents the. It was our first most ambitious attempt at what I now see as our central mission, which is to take to balance those competing truths. I mean, there you had a, a scientific truth because we were talking to scientists who were sort of describing what they felt the Yellow Rain is, and they were sort of made a very convincing case that it was just bee poop. On the other side, you had somebody whose lived experience was radically different than that. And I think where we made a mistake was we insisted on one truth over another. 
Um, and then we, we, we realized that was happening and put it on the air as an example of that, which may be giving, putting too much faith in the audience <laughs> that they're going to see us as good guys uh, when we were being assholes, you know. But I think we were putting it on the air because we were being assholes and we wanted to sort of say, oh, shit, we're assholes. So the ethic here is really an ethic of transparency. Yeah. Is it, is it more honest to pretend that it never happened or to potentially broadcast something that is upsetting? So maybe an evolving ethical principle for podcasting is this idea of transparency itself. You let an audience hear your biases, hear where you're coming from, and hear where your production decisions sometimes let you down. You, you include moments like this, and your audience gets to see those decisions and see where they unravel. And I think you even see it more clearly in Serial. So this is what I see as Serial's contribution to podcasting ethics, this idea of a human journalism. And a moment where we can hear her thinking through that process and through that ethical tension is in the last episode when she's giving us her judgment, her verdict, for the lack of a better phrase, um, on what she thinks took place. While I appreciate Adnan's blessing to take a powder, I'm not going to. Dana's right to be skeptical. What are the chances one guy got so unlucky that everything lined up against him just so? Because, yes, there's a police file full of information, circumstantial information, that looks bad for Adnan. But let's put another file next to that one, side by side. In that second file, let's put all the other evidence we have linking Adnan to the actual crime, the actual killing. What do we have? What do we know? Not what do we think we know. What do we know? If the call log does not back up Jay's story, if the Nisha call is no longer set in stone, then think about it. What do we got for that file? All we're left with is, Jay knew where the car was. That's it. And that, all by itself, that is not a story. It's a beginning, but it's not a story. It's not enough to me to send anyone to prison for life, never mind a 17-year-old kid. Because you, me, the state of Maryland, based on the information we have before us, I don't believe any of us can say what really happened to Hay. Okay, so in letting us hear that process and letting us hear her thinking through that tension, transparency becomes the main event. It becomes this kind of native aspect of podcast journalism. And you hear it much more prevalently now, post-serial, in lots and lots of other podcasts of all kinds. Hey, Martin. Yes. Do you mind if I piss on your chips for five minutes? Go ahead. But I think it might be debatable about how transparent Sarah is in Serial. <gasps> no. My, me personally, I find that is slightly undercut by her claiming to be impartial every five seconds. Or to be more exact, she does say very frequently how she is just looking at the fact. And I don't want to slag her off because no, no, no. It's a, it is, I, I do believe it is a really compelling podcast. And one of the reasons is because of this ethical to and fro. Yeah. But it's, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted, Martin. Yeah, I'm yeah. conflicted. Well, no, I, think, I think it's totally reasonable to be conflicted. What I would say is like, maybe instead of hearing it as a contradiction, you might hear it like as a tension. Now I hear it as a contradiction. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> but thinking about what Dana Chivis said about being human, making it difficult to make ethical decisions. Do you think that maybe that's why the Sussex ethical review process exists? And that's why the BBC editorial guidelines exist, because 
they recognize that it's hard. Yeah, and even serial, you know, they have a process where they listen and audition to the different versions of each episode and they figure out where they might be kind of drifting too far out of that objective framework. So, yeah. Also, I've got to say, I find it difficult to find these rules that restrictive because I've never really had to follow them. (laughs) Partly because I'm young and, you know, the big institutions won't hire me. So, you know, what can I do? I dream of that. I dream of complaining about the BBC editorial guidelines. So what can I say? Maybe I'm just the wrong person to be making these these complaints. So, Martin, instead of taking this list from the University of Sussex and sticking to it by the letter. How, how are we engaging in ethics within this series? Well, I think we're not really advocating for any position one way or the other. But what I do think we're doing is I think we're noting that something is changing, that something is evolving, that these, these old ideas of detachment and impartiality and objectivity may be being left behind in favor of this idea of transparency. Whether that's right or wrong, that's up for other people to decide. But I think we're just noticing It's definitely it. changing. Things are moving. We're going new places. Where are we going? Who knows? Who knows? I know where we're going next week. <gasps> where we're, are we going next we're week? We're going to podcast drama land. Not audio drama. But po- podcast drama. drama. We're yeah. going to anger some people, aren't we? We are. That's it for this episode of For Your Ears Only. I'm Martin Spinelli. And I've been Ella Gray Thomas. And if anything you've heard on this episode has made you curious or piqued your interest, you can check out the book Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution, which is now out from Bloomsbury. And we are on social media because it is 2019. Uh, You can find us at Is Any Podcast. And we have a grand spanking, beautifully designed website as well. So go and check it out. It's at um, Is Any Podcast. For Your Ears Only was produced by Ella Gray Thomas and Jack F. Dewars. This episode was written and presented by Martin Spinelli and co-presented by Ella Gray Thomas. Martin was also our executive producer. Andrew Duff created our sound with additional music by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Our actors were Ian McKenna and Rachel Sparks. We had support from Arts Council England, Bloomsbury Publishing and the School of Media, Film and Music at the University of Sussex and the School of Media at the University of Brighton. Our distribution was made possible by Reframe of the University of Sussex and Resonance FM. And we had support for our initial interviews from a British Academy Leverhulme Research Grant. For more information, please visit earsonlypodcast.com.